It's Dr. Sue's podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, a community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for informed consent and birth choices. And I'm online again uh, with Zoom with my sidekick and best uh, co-host in the business, Bliss Young. How's it going? Good. Okay, that was, that was a good intro. Good. <laughs> so let's talk about how they find us again. Yeah, our podcast app is still broken. We're still having uh, a barrier put into that. Ooh. I, uh, yeah, I was sure it was going to be fixed last week. It wasn't. So right now you can find us on rumble.com. And the link to that would be on my Instagram page uh, on the bio on the top. There's a whole link tree now. And you can find that. You can find my website there. Uh, you can write me at askdrstewartgmail.com. You can write bliss at birthing. Uh, Let's see, how do they write you again, Bliss? Uh, at Birthing Bliss. Bliss at Birthing Bliss. Bliss at Birthing Bliss or DM right. me on Instagram. Yeah, she likes she likes being instant message on Instagram. That's what she likes most. All right, and your website is birthingbliss.com. That's right. All right, so we, we got that taken care of. Uh, I can't ask you to write a review on the podcast app since we're not on there anymore right now. Um, I don't know for you, I don't think iTunes probably has us either. So we'll have to figure that out, but we are rebranding. And it's all going to be taken care of next month anyway, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Better. So let's get into it today because I got a lot to talk about. We're going to review a few things that we talked about last week. Uh, there's some news, things in the news. There's some absurdities, which I have to cover. And then I wanted to get to the thing that I didn't get to last week, which was discussing the sort of the parallels between how we treat the aged and how we treat pregnant people and, and birth. So... But before I do that, I was talking to my old office manager this morning, and she's she's a horse person, sort of like I am. And she sent me these little the handouts. You know that they have um, little devices that you can put on your uh, female horse that sends a signal to your phone when she's in labor. Wow, that means that we could do it for people. That's what the question is. Why don't we have one of those for people? <laughs> Good afternoon, Tennessee. Uh, um, yeah, why don't we do that for people? I mean, wouldn't that be great if you had a, like a little wristband or something that got on and it just, you know, it went to your iPhone and, and there was no false alarms and and you knew exactly when to come? Wouldn't that be great? All right. Isn't that fun? What? Because I'm very tired right now. I didn't get a false alarm, but I did sleep on someone else's couch last night because um, it was too early. So yes, that right. would be quite handy. So you yeah. have somebody you have somebody that's sort of uh, in programmal labor then today? No, she's in labor. I thought it would be interesting. I know people really like to hear um, births, our birth stories, and and you know sometimes when we say like, and then the baby just came out. I'm sure people would actually like to know a little bit more about what our lives are like. Mm. You think? So my if they do, they can ask the question, and maybe we'll get into that too. But let's get cracking. Liz, can you take your little your uh, screen and center it a little bit? Because you're off to one. There you go. A little bit more. Tired. <laughs> it represents how tired I am. That's okay. Well, I'll 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 take the lead. I'll get you through it. Okay. All right. We got we got a lot of people coming in, so I'll I'll say hello to everybody in a little bit. Okay. So um, last week we talked a little bit about a couple of things. One was the fact that the UCLA UCLA midwives had been um, banned from, or practicing, all right? But we have an update on that, don't we, Bliss? Yeah, they were fired, actually. I heard yeah, that fired, a couple right. of the they people. Fired, let go, lost their, lost their health benefits, you know, yeah. unsurreptitiously, they were just let go. But there's an update, what's the update? We didn't get a lot of uh, information about why exactly. I think it was a lot of speculation um, about uh, money, it being a, a financial motivation. But there was a lot of pressure, which is great to know that it works sometimes. There was a lot of pressure from the local community with the doulas and um, you know social media and just really speaking out about how unhappy we were that UCLA was making this decision and there were talks of um, boycotting UCLA and um, they they changed their mind about the program. Yeah, I heard there was even some um, some positive support from some of the physicians that practiced with the midwives too. 
So again, we don't know. We don't know why they were let go. We don't know why they were rehired. But all we know is that we're back to where we were before, and UCLA looks like an idiot. Right? <laughs> they let their panties show. Yes, they did. Yeah, they were. Yeah. they were, they were uh, sagging. <laughs> okay. Not good enough for UCLA. Okay, and Tiffany's um, <laughs> right. They should be embarrassed, and they are. I hope. Um, so Bliss, you also want to talk a little bit about clarification of the chest feeding issue. I, I put that first because I wanted to get that off the table. I did because you had asked me last week about chest feeding. I did say that it was a term that was used, um, ooh, sorry, Stu, it's still loading. So give me a minute. I might have to come back to it. Um, uh, it's a term that is used to be inclusive. And I found a really great um, article that explains the different um, people or, or examples of situations where someone might prefer a term. So I'll just go through it quickly. Um, chest feeding is the process of feeding a child human milk from a person's chest. It is a term that can be used by anyone, but it is often used by transgender and non-binary people for whom the words breastfeeding or nursing are not an ideal fit. Here are a few examples. A transgender man may choose to use the term chest feeding if they had surgery to remove breast tissue, known as, that's the name of the, tissue, the surgery, top surgery or male chest contouring surgery. Um, a non-binary person, someone who does not identify as having a particular gender, may not be comfortable using the term breastfeeding or nursing as these have historically been taught, um, thought of as female acts. Breastfeeding is a neutral term. A cisgender woman, a person whose gender identity aligns with the sex that they were assigned at birth, may have experienced breast-related trauma and feels better using a more neutral neutral term, especially given the hypersexualized um, hypersexualization of our breasts in our society. Um, so there you go. There's a few examples of people who may prefer the term chest feeding over breastfeeding. So sometimes when you're seeing um, people refer to it these days, you'll see both breast or chest feeding. And right. that's, and that's. I get it. I get it. I want to say two things about that. First of all, the breasts are a sexual organ. So they are um, by definition, you know, that, that human females are the only mammals that have, that have breasts when they're not pregnant. Mm -hmm. Because it's a, it's a signal or it's a, it's a thing that attracts the uh, opposite sex. So anyway, I just wanted to say that because, it, you know, she says it, it often uses a sex and we're hypersexualized, not necessarily hypersexualized, but it, but it is a, it is a sexuality marker. And, and, and if it wasn't, then women would, when they're not breastfeeding, their breasts would retract like they do in cats and dogs and horses and other things like that. So there is a purpose for it in that way. On the other side of, the, of that point, and it's not an argument, I don't want to make an argument because, because um, there are strong feelings on everything like this and we should all just try to get along. But when we talk about inclusivity, we often exclude people by trying to so hard for inclusivity. And I just wanted to read, I got a few letters based on what I said last week and um, they were all kind of supportive of what I had said, which is typical of my audience. So let, let me let Jamie in here, hang on a second. Okay. And so she says, this woman says, I've written to you before. Personally, I find trendy transgenderism to be sexist in many ways. What makes a woman a woman, a man a man, if not their hormonal or sexual makeup? Is womanhood defined by wearing makeup or a dress? Manhood defined by pants and enjoying sports? In many of these circles, that's all they change about themselves, their outer appearance. I think this world was view is inadvertently destroying the sacred space of women and birth. Uh, chest feeding like, well, like Latinx is not only a choice to misunderstand how language works, but it is defeminizing the inherent feminine instead of Latina, I guess she means. It's upset to me to watch the celebration of womanhood femininity being slowly blotted out by the PC crowd in the name of inclusivity. Um, and then she says, I don't want to make people feel excluded from society. 
But that includes people who believe like me. And slowly but surely, I feel us being pushed to the sidelines. At what point does it stop? Where's the line? Mm -hmm. so, I'll just leave it at that because I want people to think about it. But everybody should kind of do what they do. We should be respectful of others, all people's points of views. But sometimes changing the entire culture for a very, very small minority causes exclusion for people or people who feel differently about it. So it's, it's, a, it's for thought. I know that 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 is a um, a point that can be made, but I will just say, as a as a very feminine woman, I don't feel like I'm being pushed out or excluded in my femininity or womanhood because I am sensitive and try and use inclusive terms or be sensitive about a a um, <laughs> the word is not coming to me because I'm tired today, but um, a group of people who feel like they're marginalized. So I don't, that's all I, I have to say about that. And I don't, I don't want to negate someone else's point, but I'm saying like, I think that you are saying, and I think that what's great about who we are together in our podcast is that we want to figure out how to have conversations about some of these more complicated um, topics without having it be something that we don't respect another person's opinion. So yeah, totally. Thank you for that. Okay. Yeah. Leave it at that because that's what we, I mean, we're just putting stuff out into the, into the universe here. Um, just another little uh, PC, a little, you know, again, this is, I'm not, well, I, you know, I have, a, I will comment on this because it affected me directly, but, but I was invited by the University of British Columbia to come speak um, in the, I don't know exactly, remember when exactly it was, it was going to be this summer, this fall. Um, last year they had Sean Walker. I don't know if a few people know who Sean Walker is, but she's a British uh, midwife who, who is very big on breach, does a lot of breach stuff on her. And she came and spoke last year. They invited me to come and speak this year, which is great. And they gave me topics like, how do you navigate supporting families and having a breach or multiples in the home? How do you redefine pregnancy risk? What experience have you had that brought you to where you are in your career? Uh, so on and so forth. And so I was kind of excited to do it. I didn't really know if it was going to work out because of coronavirus and all the lockdown stuff. But I got a letter from them uh, just five, four days ago. No, about six days ago that says, my apologies about the long science. We've been going through a process to see how much funding we have. This has been drawn out since our student association only meets once a month. Unfortunately, the end consensus was that we only afford one speaker and the student body currently wants to center on anti-racism work. So thank you for not coming because you've been bumped by some by a topic of midwife students wanting more on anti-racism than they want about like home breach or home twin delivery. And that's mm -hmm. just, I'll leave it at that. I'll just leave it at that. I mean, you could get plenty of that all day long every day, all right? I mean, you don't have to have your keynote speaker come and talk about that, but that's what the students chose so that Kind of shows me I'm, I'm becoming a, more and more of a dinosaur as we go along. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> okay. Next. A dinosaur, dinosaur sound. What? I said, too bad there's not a dinosaur sound. We could put a dinosaur sound. We should. Like feel that but, it, but it wouldn't be a roar. It would have to be like one of the dinosaurs being screaming while it's getting eaten by the Rex or something like that. Because, yeah, I'm not. Sorry. I'm, I'm actually disappointed. I really want to go speak to academic institutions, whether it's midwives or medical students, about what we do. And I thought, oh, this is great. British Columbia, big deal. You know, I don't know if I could, if the Latin American crossed the border. <laughs> I don't know. But it was going to be in the fall, I think. And, and uh, I got bumped. Yeah, it's disappointing. But, you know, statistically, um, in terms of maternal health, that is um, more of a focus right now because of, of what's happening with black and brown bodies, you know, and that's, that's really a, a thing, but it is disappointing because I know we really want people to learn that breach is normal and that's really important to us as well. So. Okay. I will. I, yeah. I, again, this podcast isn't to discuss the term even anti-racism because that implies that there are pro-racist people and I don't, I don't, it's just a weird, it's a weird thing. Okay. Next thing is yesterday. So I was looking, I've been looking at some properties. Um, 
And I have a realtor in different states looking at things because, you know, I'm thinking about where am I going to go? Whatever. So a realtor sent me something yesterday and I said, I texted her at, what time was it? It was, um, I think 6.58, I texted her that, no, 6.52, I texted her, uh, is the washer and dryer gas or electric? Okay. At 7.04 on my Facebook feed, I get an ad for a washer. Mm -hmm. okay. 12 minutes later, I'm texting her on my Apple phone and on my Facebook feed shows up an ad for a washer. That is totally freaky to me. I know that people yeah. talk about how that happens all the time, but I'm Stuart Fishbein. I never talk about washers and dryers. Okay. That's not something that's on my radar screen even. All right. Horse stuff, Kings hockey, what, that stuff, I see ads for that. Okay, fine. But this was 12 minutes. It took 12 minutes and probably less because it took me 12 minutes until I noticed it. So that's going in the round. That went right in the round file, but I thought I'd bring that up anyway. Okay. And then as you, and, and then um, can I, I'm just on a roll. Is that okay with you? You are on a roll. You go. Okay. Well, here's an interesting one because not because of the, of the uh, person, but because of the, the ties to our, our community and also it brings up a good topic that some people might want to know about. So on my home birth, uh, I get Google alerts for home birth every night. And the first Google alert was um, pregnant Mandy Moore describes, quote, tinge of jealousy, unquote, of moms having home births now that she, and then it's blank, blank, blank. So I read onward and now that she's apparently got low platelet count. So she was on Elliot Berlin's Informed Pregnancy podcast telling her story. So I would like to put a plug in for our pal Elliot and his Informed Pregnancy podcast. If you're looking for another podcast to sign up for, if, like if you don't have enough things on your day already, Informed Pregnancy podcast is a good one. And he, he tends to interview because he does all the people in Los Angeles when it comes to breaches and lots of celebrities and stuff. So he gets some really interesting his format is to interview people about their experiences. Sometimes he'll have a two or three part or like a pre-labor, a labor and a postpartum, and he'll do the whole thing. So it's kind of, it's very interesting, but he interviewed her and I have not listened to the interview, but um, apparently she, her home birth plans were dashed. I love the word dashed. That's in the article by low plate, like by a low plate account. Now I have no idea how low. All right. But I do have suspicions. All right. I just have suspicions that, you know, maybe it was truly low. Maybe there was really something um, that needed to be intervened upon and that, that would, should interfere with a home birth. And maybe it was just a little bit below the, the normal and it has, there's absolutely no reason. I, I consult with midwife patients all the time for people that have a, the, a, a low platelet count is defined as less than 150,000. Um, usually mm -hmm. the plate account will fall through pregnancy, it's highest in the first trimester and works its way down. That's a normal thing that happens. But you don't really see problems with the plate account until it's under 50,000 or even under 30,000. There's no reason that a woman with a plate account of 90,000 or 110,000, if she has something called gestational thrombocytopenia, which is but about 80% of women who have low plate account in pregnancy, that's, that's just a normal thing that happens to them. It's not an immune problem. It's not an infectious problem. Uh, it's not preeclampsia or HELP syndrome or anything like that. It's just a, a low platelet count. Those women don't have a problem. As a matter of fact, they're better off, in my opinion, staying home because at home they can deal with discomfort in any way they want to. In the hospital, they're not gonna allow them, the anesthesia department will be fearful and will not want to put an epidural in them for fear of giving them a uh, epidural hematoma. Okay. You, do you know about that? Right. Okay. And the risk of getting epidural hematoma when your platelet count is over 70,000, all right, is very, very, very low. Yet, I don't think there's a single anesthesiologist at the hospitals I used to work at that would have put it in if it was less than like 120,000 or 100,000. So again, so you're going to be denied something based on very little data. Um, but this is a, a topic because seven to 12% of pregnant women will have a low platelet count. Um, seven out of 12? No, seven to 12%. So like one oh, in 10, 12. like one in 10, uh, put it that way, okay. say one in 10. Mm -hmm. We'll have a low platelet count. 
And well, first of all, we don't, I mean, we check a CBC at 28 weeks, right? More or less? Yeah, repeat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, do we do any others if it's normal at 28 weeks? Not, not typically. Right. No, not, not unless, um, yeah, not unless it was borderline and we've been supplementing and then we might want to recheck it to make sure that the supplementation that we're giving is actually impacting the issue. Right. So we really don't know the play the count of our clients when they go into labor. All right. We have no, no way of knowing. All right. But if they're not having, if they're not symptomatic, if they're not bruising easily, if they're not bleeding, um, having bleeding problems or something like that, then there's really no reason that you even need to know their platelet account. Okay. Because again, if you cut an episiotomy or they have a laceration, maybe with a low platelet count, um, then, then um, you might bleed more from your episiotomy or from your laceration. But, but uterine bleeding doesn't stop because of clotting. It stops because you right. have cracks. So mm-hmm. these women should be able to have their home birth anyway. All right. But I got a feeling that she probably had to play the count. Again, I'm just speculating. I'm not going to even speculate on Mandy more specifically because I, I'm sure she has good medical advice. But I think that many women are given skewed medical advice. They're given their, their play that comes back at 104,000 and they're told, oh my God, you know, you have to be in the hospital. But the question you have, no one bothers to ever stop, which we, you and I bother to stop all the time is, well, why? What's the hospital going to do for her otherwise? Is a play that count that mm-hmm. low going to cause her to suddenly bleed out where she's going to need, you know, a transfusion immediately? No, of course not. All right. So... Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just found it uh, disheartening. I mean, I, I empathize with Mandy Moore. All right, I have a, like a I have a six degrees of Kevin Bacon with her, by the way, because um, I was gonna say that she didn't get a second opinion from you. Yeah, or even uh, Chibira or any anybody anybody who's got a different a, a viewpoint of it. Now, again, she may very well have had like a play account of forty thousand or something. I mean, she may, or she may have had ITP or some other problem that's a little bit different than gestational thrombocytopenia. But in case anybody's curious, my six, my six degrees of um, separation from her, it's, is that my boy's father, I'm their stepfather, my boy's father is a cinematographer who shot a movie starring Mandy Moore. <laughs> so, <laughs> <That's not> six. <laughs> no, it's not six, but it's within, it's within six. I think it's supposed to be within six. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. Do I have anything else that's on that? Let's see. Um, oh, by the way, the, the, if the mother has a low platelet count, the chance of a neonate having it is less than 2%. All right. Even if it's an antibody related thing, it's very low. And there's no way other than doing some invasive procedure like cordocentesis to determine the baby's platelet count. We used to actually do scalp, fetal scalp sampling. We would, baby, she'd be like four centimeters dilated. We'd take this cone up against the baby's head, stick a one of those things against the baby's head to make it bleed, take a little capillary tube, take some of that blood out, send it off for a platelet count. And then we could determine whether or not to go vaginally or go by cesarean. But the incidence is so low and by the way, the, the ACOG, I read their paper on it, they're very firm in saying that there's no reason to section someone for a low platelet count, all right? The only reason to section someone for a low platelet count would be for obstetrical indications that would indicate a C-section. So just because someone has a platelet count of 90,000, you would not say, well, it's too dangerous for you to have a vaginal delivery. That's not true. It seems like the opposite. What? Like, like a vaginal delivery is better better to do than a C-section for low platelet count. No, scalpels are always better. Don't you know that by now? You haven't learned that by now? I'm sorry, I forgot. All right. You're you're forgiving because you're tired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I got to save that for future title for a podcast. Apples are always better. Always better. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Oh, I have another. Okay, so here's some uh, some absurdities. All right, we got a few. I mean, we could go on with these for a long time, but these are just ones that came over in the next last week or so. 
So I got a letter from a woman in Canoga Park, which is here in Southern California. It says, I'm 12 weeks pregnant with twins. I would really like to have a natural birth. But when I was speaking to my OBGYN about the other day, she really, she really was saying I would need to have an epidural. So I wanted to see what my options were for having a natural birth. Okay. So what am I going to say about that, Bliss, knowing, knowing me? That it's absurd? Um, yeah, she's 12 weeks, the, 12 weeks pregnant. You're already telling her how she has to give birth. And, yeah, and what does an epidural have to do with with her having a having a birth right now as a normal low risk mom? Like, what? How? How does that have anything to do with what the doctor prefers? Yes, yes, yes. Do <laughs> it's because that's how they're taught. That they should tell people that they have to have an epidural. All twins, all twins, even when I was at Cedars doing twins, all twins had an epidural placed in labor, even if it wasn't activated. And they placed it in labor in case something went wrong, which is almost like saying something's going to go wrong. So we have to have an epidural in place. Um, right. And so that's how they're taught. And, and once you're taught and you come and you finish your training, you, you rarely leave the box that you're taught in. And yeah. so I just brought this up because this physician who happens to be a woman said to her patient at 12 weeks that in order for her to have a vaginal delivery, she'd have to have an epidural. Well, she wasn't even saying a vaginal delivery, but she was saying that she'd have to have an epidural if she's going to be in labor with twins. Right? No downsides to epidurals, as we've talked about a zillion times on this podcast you know, my whole theory about disconnecting mother from baby with an epidural. No, no problem with that. Nothing that doesn't interfere with it means you have to be monitored. It means you can't move. You can't walk around because you now have an epidural. That doesn't matter. I was trained that you have an epidural when you have twins in case you have to do something quickly. So therefore I'm going to tell all my patients they have to have an epidural as opposed to just stepping back for a second and thinking, does this make sense? Does it make sense? Gets back to my the, the title of, I think it was last week's podcast, which I didn't get. I used a title, which I didn't even get to. Uh, the part of it, which was called commonplace is not the same as correctness or commonplace does not equal correctness. Just as, just as uh, correlation does not equal causation. Hang on, I gotta let this person in. Okay, so that's that one. That's one absurdity. You don't need an epidural when you have twins and you certainly can ask about it and they can, if somebody gives you the pros and cons of it and actually gives you true pros and cons, true informed consent, and you want one, great. That's fine. All right. But to say that you, you're going to tell a woman at 12 weeks when she's got a million things to think about that she's going to need an epidural. Um, you're, you're sort of getting ahead of yourself there. Okay. So here's a, here's a, a bit of a, Sad one for me because I've been a fellow of the American College of OBGYN for 31 years, okay? And as of March 1st, I will no longer be a fellow of the American College of OBGYN. And what does the fellow part mean exactly? Oh, it just, it, it, you know, it's like uh, you, you get a trophy and you get to wear a little uh, laurel wreath around your head and you get to say that you are a member of a fellowship of the of the ring, <laughs> you're, you're, you're just, you know, it's the highest achievement you can achieve in obstetrics. It's, it's again, it's an organization making itself, I mean, it's always been important and I'm not belittling that, but, you know, because, you know, having, having diplomas on your walls or having trophies or having award certificates or being honored for something, you know, this is part of life and this is what we do. So achieving fellowship means that you, you've passed your residency, you passed your boards, you did all the things that were required. You went through a ceremony. My parent, the ceremony when I went was in Vegas. My parent, I, I flew my parents out to Vegas in 19, I guess it was 1990. Yeah, so 31 years. So 1990. And I remember that I also got them tickets to Barbara Streisand's final, uh, final uh, appearance, all right? Her final, uh, concert ever. And of course she probably had final concerts ever for the next 10 years. All right. <laughs> and I spent like $500 a ticket for my parents because my mother loved Barbara Streisand. 
So we went to see Barbra Streisand that weekend. I still remember that weekend. But you wear a cap and gown, mm -hmm. and you get you know you wear a hat. You get a green castle, which I still have someplace. Actually, I might even have. Honor. It's okay. You yeah, don't have to. No, I don't know where it is. I'm going to go OCD on myself. Yeah, I have a green tassel someplace. And so it was great. But now, the American College of OBGYN, whether or not, I have not been board certified since 2009. All right. I have chosen not to continue that board certification and the, the thing called maintenance of certification because it. It became, um, it used to be you were board certified for life and then you were board certified for 10 years and then they moved it to six years and then they moved it to every year that you have to do something called maintenance of certification. And all it is is a money and power grab, all right? They're charging physicians about $1,000 or more a year to take these modules that you have to take. And these modules have nothing to do, almost nothing to do with my narrow focus of my practice. Mm -hmm. They're about gynecology and gynecological surgery and chemotherapy and other things. And I'm not, that's not what I do. So, plus I'm a nonconformist to begin with. So I just, you know, they didn't want me to be board certified when I had some issues back, you know, a few, 10 years ago. So then when I, when I could be board certified again, I chose not to do it. And the, the college didn't care apparently because they knew about it. But now they've got a rule that says that if you're not board certified, you can only be an associate, you can't be a fellow. So I'm not being kicked out of the college or anything like that, but I just, my title is being diminished. And I'm just wondering why, why the American College of OBGYN and the American Board of OBGYN are two completely different organizations. I wouldn't be surprised if they had the same people because the board is a paid position. I actually wrote the board this week and ask them for a list of their members on their board of directors and also the members on their um, uh, their rules committee. I don't know that I'll ever hear back from them, but I'm curious to see how the correlation is between those people and the people with ACOG. But it's another it's another thing where big, you know, it's like big tech and big media or big tech and big government are getting together. Here you have big OB and big, you know, American Board of Medical Specialties getting together and say, okay, you have people get board certified and we'll do this and that. And, and so they're limiting people. Not only are they limiting somebody like me, but they're limiting, limiting guys that have been fellows all their life and they're retired now or semi-retired and they're not practicing, but they're taking away that emeritus. I mean, they they're still maybe can call them emeritus, but they're, they can't call themselves fellows of the, of the American college anymore. So if they do legal work or if they do, but they don't, maintain their boards because they're not practicing anymore. Um, they have to take fellow off of their resume. Mm -hmm. It's just more junk. Anyway. Disappointing. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 I, I'm, I'm surprised. You know, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that I fully expect that there's going to be more and more rules about what you and I do bliss. And especially what I do because there are no rules right now for what I do. I, I follow my conscience and my training and my experience and I give informed consent, but someday they'll come along and say, you know, you can't do twins at home. And that will happen in California. I don't know about other States, but it will happen here because they just don't stop regulating. Right. They never, yeah. they never back off of regulation. Um, the other night I ate at a restaurant. I ate at a restaurant and um they had this sign, I'll, I'll just read it to you. They had this sign, I took a picture of it, posted um, on the entrance to the restaurant. And it says, in accordance with the CD, and we only can eat outdoors, by the way, in Los Angeles anyway. So we're eating outdoors. In accordance with CDC guidelines and maintaining healthy restaurant operations, help keep our business open, protect our staff and protect other dining guests. Follow, please follow the following guidelines. Keep your mask on until your food is served and after finishing your food. Put your mask back on whenever the server is at your table. Put your mask on whenever you leave the table. Wash and sanitize your hands. And if you're dining in, stay a maximum of 90 minutes. Okay. So the reason I call this absurd is that this, these are CDC guidelines. So the CDC has studied the fact that when I'm sitting at a table across from my friend or partner, 
that I should put my mask on except when I'm eating. All right. While while we're while we're sitting there talking, and then when the waiter comes up to my table, I've got to quickly grab my mask and put it back on again. I mean, he's wearing a mask and a face shield. Okay. At that restaurant, he so, was. So, do does anyone really believe that the that there are people at the CDC that have actually studied this, or they're just putting out guidelines because businesses are asking for guidelines so they don't get sued, or something of that nature? Because how do you know? Stay for 90 minutes. What happens after yeah. 91 minutes? That one is interesting. Yeah, and that's the one, it's, that's the one, by the way, in really, really big print at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So those are my absurdities. Okay. Um, a couple of COVID-19 things. How are we doing for time? We're doing, okay. Well, we're probably going to run out of time again today. <laughs> I gotta, and you're on a roll. Yeah, well, I, I got it. Okay. So um, remember we talked last time about uh, vaccines in pregnancy and whether to get them or not. Um, and we don't know because I said there's no data out there. So I've got a few things that I have to report that Pfizer launches a trial to evaluate COVID-19 vaccine in pregnant women. So again, this confirms, by the way, that we have no data. But yet ACOG and Fauci and all these people are saying, oh, go ahead. It's safe in pregnancy. Take it. All right. Yeah. Well, if, we, if it's safe in pregnancy, then why are we getting a new trial? It says we have to find out whether it's safe in pregnancy. Okay. Anyway, they're going to take 4,000 healthy volunteers and they're going to be a randomized, placebo controlled, double blinded trial. So, with 4,000 women, 2,000 will be randomized to one group, 2,000 the other group, one group will get the vaccine, the other group won't. The people giving the shot will not know whether they're giving vaccine or giving placebo. And they'll, and they'll, they'll track it, but I don't know exactly what their parameters will be. I don't know how long they're going to track it because if you're tracking pregnant women, are you tracking the babies till they're 18? Um, that sort of thing. And is 4,000 a big enough number for things. That yeah, it seems so hard to be able to like figure out if it's, if it's the vaccine or not, because it's such a low number of people who are going to get actually sick anyways. It's just interesting how they're going to figure that out. Yeah. By the way, I have one more absurdity on my website, on my video page, I have a link to Aurora's breach, home breach birth, which everyone has seen. It's in the documentary. It's got over probably 15 million views um, cool. of the birth. And now YouTube has put on my website, you can't click on the video anymore. You have to click on it. it the, the picture of Aurora being, you know, the, the picture that was on the videos on the, on the YouTube video is gone. And now there's a YouTube warning about graphic, Which about graphic material. All right. So again, you know, riots and other things, not graphic, beautiful home breach birth graphic. All right. Yeah. They were able to change a lot of those restrictions um, with advocacy and like fighting for it with um, Facebook and Instagram. So it's possible that we can start to direct um, towards YouTube for some of that, at least in terms of like saying that, you know, showing vaginas having to do with birth is not something that is um, pornographic. It's, it's something that's natural. Because they, they used to ban them all the time on Facebook and Instagram, and now well, they, they still they still they still ban a lot on Instagram. They still ban um, a lot of birth videos. I get on my Instagram feed have have a sensitive material, and you have to click another button to go forward. You can't you can't. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They do that. They do that. But they still you still can see them. Um, they're not like removed. I know, but they don't ban they, they don't ban videos of, of like dogs humping their master's leg. <laughs> Okay. Not considered pornographic in our culture. Yes, I, I guess. Okay. So here's a here's okay. a good here's a good uh, article that I got from the Sacramento Bee that said, "Will kids soon have to get COVID nineteen vaccines to attend California schools?" Question mark. All right. Why they put the question mark on there? To me, is um, uh, like foolish. Because you know damn well that in order to go to school, they're going to make kids get 
vaccinated once it's approved for children, right? I mean, if they. I mean, that's how it. At least here in California. Yes. Well, that's tends to attend yeah. California schools? Question mark. No, of course yeah. they. Of course they will. But what's 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 great about this thing is they they say things in these articles and they don't even realize what they're saying. Okay, so here's Bradley Pollock, a professor of epidemiology and chairman of the Department of Public Health Sciences at University of California Davis School of Medicine. Big, highly credentialed guy, and he says this. Eventually, we want to get kids vaccinated. The problem is that it's going to take some time to get to the point where we can do that because you have to have the efficacy and the safety data generated to be able to do that. What's wrong with that statement? Say it again. Efficacy. I won't, I won't put you on the spot. Okay. They're, they're, they're saying that we can't give it to kids until we have safety uh, data. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, why can they give it to all of us without safety data? Isn't that a no brainer? Because you have right. to have the efficacy and safety data generated to be able to do that. So are, ki are kids a separate category? We're expendable, but kids are not. No. Do they even, do they even, I, when they say, make a statement like that, I mean, I know that everybody makes dumb statements sometimes and you can take it out of context and it can be, thing, but I mean, is that revealing that he's saying that for, for children, we have to have safety data. To me, that's an implication. We don't have safety data. Now, maybe they've just, they're saying that children should be studied differently than adults and that's fine. But I know that we really don't have a lot of safety data on adults either. Okay. Not enough time, you rolled out yeah. too fast. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, I'm not sure there's great safety data on a lot of the vaccines we give. I mean, the safety data on the HPV vaccine is, is horrible. And it's it part, part of the vaccine schedule. Still give it to kids and, yeah. they, and they encourage it. They encourage giving it to kids, okay? So um, the last thing before I think I, oh no, I got, I got a letter here. Let me read this letter real quick. Because she has questions for you, Bliss. She says, um, this is from Oregon. She says, I found my, I, I received my first dose of the Moderna vaccine on January 27th and found out on February 18th, that was but three weeks later that I was about five weeks pregnant. So she was just barely conceived at the time she got her vaccine. I have an opportunity to receive my second dose on February 27th and I'm reluctant. My OB here in Oregon, who, I'm, who I am not close with, is telling me to get it, but my instincts are telling me otherwise. Well, just like we talked about, there's no data to giving it to children, so why would there be data to giving it to pregnant women? But um, he said, but her doctor says, get it, okay? That said, I am a teacher and cannot isolate, so being immune is important to me. Any thoughts? Also, do you and Bliss have, know anyone in Oregon who I can work with? My oh, I, that's that. We don't have to deal with that. I wrote her a response, but my, you know what I'm thinking about this, right? Yeah, I mean, especially. Well, I don't know what you're thinking about, but what I'm thinking about is especially in early, early pregnancy. Um, there's more risks to exposure um, to teratogens than later in pregnancy. So to me, and some of the um, side effects of the second dose include fever, which is, which is known to be not good in early pregnancy. So, and there's no data to show that it's safe for pregnancy. Um, so I, uh, I would be, you know, the thing that I really liked about that letter is she said, my instincts tell me. Yeah. And as a mama, your instincts are everything for you. And um, if you can't follow your own instincts about this, um, you know, that that's what I would encourage her to do is to really trust her instincts because her instincts are, are protecting her and her baby right now. And um it, it, she's in a conundrum though because of her work, you know, and not being able to isolate if if she's nervous about getting the virus. So it is it is a it is a challenging thing to have to decide. But now that she is pregnant, I think she's going to have to listen to what her gut is telling her. Yeah, but, but at her in her age group, the chance of her getting the virus and getting really really sick from it is extremely small. 
And there's no data that says that you get, if you get the virus, that, that there's vertical transmission to the baby of any serious degree. Right. So again, there, the data on that isn't extensive either because it's a new, it's a new, it's a new virus, but, but um, so there's no, there's no zero risk route to take, you know, however, getting something artificial injected inside of you assures you that your, that your fetus will be exposed to something. Whereas you may not get the virus the whole time that you are teaching or being pregnant. Um, here's what I said to her. I said, dear Casey, which is her name, any thoughts anyone has on this issue is opinion or speculation often based on experience or confirmation bias as there is no data on the safety or harm of this new type of vaccine on women of reproductive age, fertility and pregnancy as yet. And if history is any predictor, there is not likely to be any good data on this subpopulation anytime soon um, to help with your decision-making. It is a wonder to me how some physicians and scientists and spokespeople can claim safety with such certainty. The truth is that no one knows. You are in a low risk category for severe illness or morbidity, as I just said. We generally suggest our clients take what information they have, in this case, little, and apply risks and benefits to their individual situation. Teachers are in a rough position because there may be mandates to be vaccinated in order to go to work. While this is likely unconstitutional and unethical, it won't matter if you lose your income. My personal opinion is not to take the vaccine while pregnant. It may, be very, well, it may very well be safe, but currently there are too many unknowns. I do not think it likely that this timing of this first vaccine given you will be a problem but it is reasonable to consider holding off on the second dose if that is where your mind is at. Just like you said, her intuition. Mm -hmm. Then I said about her town seems pretty small and in the middle of nowhere, which is where she lives in the middle of nowhere, Oregon. I do not personally know any midwives in that area, but I have always thought that Oregon is pretty midwife friendly and there must be some choices there, even if you or they have to drive a bit. Are there other home birth parents nearby? Perhaps they would be a good reference. I copied Bliss so she might chime in if she knows a resource. Oh, and by the way, congratulations on the exciting news. Usually I say that at the beginning of the letter and I, I had forgotten to say that to her. So anyway, Casey, um, yeah, I think you, I was talking to intuition. And if you have to get the second shot somewhere down the road or if you have to do the whole series again a year from now, then you, you'll have more data, so. Do you know anything about that in terms of the spacing? I don't, I don't know about that. Like. One is, three weeks, it, one is three weeks, one is four weeks. I don't remember which is which. Okay. So she might have to redo it again if she declines the second one now. Yeah, well, like we, could, we could figure it out. I don't know which one did she get. Did she say which vaccine she got? Oh, Moderna. And that was January 27th, and she's supposed to get one on February 27th. So Moderna is four weeks, and I think Pfizer is three weeks. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. okay. Um, so we have... Good, we have 10 minutes, so this is great. So I'm reading a book. I'm reading actually two books at the same time. Um, I'm not reading either one of them, actually. I'm listening to them because mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time in my car, as everybody knows. And the one book I'm reading is called Becoming Mortal. I don't know if anybody's read it. It's not something you would just pick up and read. It's uh, by an author named Atul Gawande. And Atul Gawande has probably written many books on sort of health and aging and and how, you know, the, 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 you know, a little bit healthy lifestyle, that sort of thing. But I found this book to be fascinating. And I wish I could remember who gave it to me because somebody I know sent it to me and they didn't send it to me because I am going to be 65 this year. <laughs> they sent it to me because um, I think that they thought that there was a lot in there that showed the parallels to how we treat the pregnant pregnancy and, and, um, and prenatal care for women and birthing for women. And so I wanted to just review a little bit about the elderly and the aging. The specialty is called geriatrics. And it, when, you, when you do a survey of medical students and what they might wanna do when they finish, in, in what residencies they wanna go into, very, very few medical students wanna do geriatrics. And yet with the baby boomers now reaching that age group, I mean, there's, there's a ton of people that are going to be getting old in the next 20 or 30 years that we already have a ton of people that are old, but it's going to be even a whole lot more because we have that group of people that were born between 1945 and 1963, I think it was. 
when the birth control pill was developed. Um, so those are, that's the baby boomer generation. I happen to be in that group. And um, uh, there very few people are, very few medical students are interested. And, and apparently 97% of medical schools don't teach a course on geriatrics during their four years of medical school. I didn't get one. 97? 97? Right. Wow. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. I didn't, I, I didn't get one, but that was a long time ago. But now it's still 90, apparently 97%, according to the book, don't teach about geriatrics. Now, is geriatrics just something you can do with family practice or internship? Or, I mean, uh, being an internist? Yeah, but, but again, it's a really unique subspecialty because there's so much more that goes to it. When the medical model treats it as just a illness or a disease, it's kind of like what the medical model does to pregnancy when it treats it as illness or disease. All the humanity is taken out of it. Um, and institutionalized medicine, which is where most of our old people go these days, doesn't do it well, okay? And I, and I could have used that same sentence when I talk about labor and delivery as well. So a lot of, a lot of people now go to nursing homes, all right, when they're old, because we used to, it used to be families were multi-generational, that in the same household you had children, parents, grandparents, all living in the same household. You saw people would be born, you had home birthing, and you saw people die. People died in their bed at home. Yeah. There's a documentary out, which I wouldn't call great, but I, but I think it's worth watching, called A Family Undertaking. I don't know if you've seen it, Bliss. Oh, you I seen did, it? yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it talks, and it shows about a, a, an older woman who's dying at home. And, and, it, and it's a documentary about the whole thing. And uh, the little kids are running in and out of the room, and they're holding grandma's hand, and and I just, that's the visions I remember. And so it's sort of uh, on this topic about how we dissociate, we remove birth and we remove death from our, from our world. Um, nursing homes were invented in 1954, but why were they invented in 1954? And they were invented in 1954 simply as a way for hospitals to clear their beds, all right? Because the, the, because the payments for old people and the longevity they were in the hospital, the hospitals weren't making any money off of them. And mm -hmm. so they wanted a way to take those people and move them someplace else. It wasn't a place to care for elderly. It was a place to ship them out, All right. Yeah. So in the 1980s, the first innovative people, and I don't remember their names, but, but there were some innovative people. There was a woman in Oregon who came up with something called an assisted living facility. And you could parallel this to like freestanding birth centers, all right? Um, what she did was she, um, of course, when she did this, she was immediately met by the naysayers. You know how that, that whole saying about, you know, the, the nail that stands out has to be pounded on because it makes people uncomfortable, that whole thing. Yeah. So the naysayers industry, but it was well received by the elderly who were transferred into the system. And the difference between her assisted living facilities and nursing home were legion. And the distances mainly were that in an assisted living home, people had their own room. They didn't have a roommate. They could lock their door. And they found with the surveys that the fact that a person could lock their door. In a nursing home, the doors never locked. And in a nursing home, a person was given like two drawers and a shelf to put their lifetime worth of belongings in. Yeah. And in assisted living facilities, you had your own room, your own closet, your own little uh, living room. And again, it's small, obviously, but you could put up your own artwork, you could put up your own pictures, you could do these sorts of things, you could make it more home. You could have real plants, not fake plants, and they allowed pets, cats, dogs, and parakeets. And they found, looking at that, and we all know that the people lived longer. They lived happier. On surveys, every one of them, they did better, okay? And that started in the 1980s, okay? And, they, and it was something called, they, the term that they used to describe it was called loyalty. When you have something to live for, you live better. So when you have a job, when you have a wife or a spouse, or you have grandchildren, or you have a pet, or you have a purpose, or you have volunteer work. Um, you know, I went hiking, uh, I went down to Temecula the other day for a home visit and we did a hike afterwards, my student Alyssa and I, and there were like three or four volunteers at the entrance to the park and, you know, they were women and older women, and there was an older man there too, and they were volunteers. So they 
go to the park to help people decide which trail to take. You know, what a fun thing to do. Anyway, um, they treated elderly people as individuals, all right? And they did all those things that I said about by giving them their own rooms, all right? The problem, of course, happened, which was, was always happens, is that because it was successful, despite the naysayers in, in the institutionalized elderly healthcare system, um, the idea was quickly stolen and by, a cor by corporations, which, made, which put them out in reams, and they called them assisted living or something else. They, they gave them the same name. It's like a hospital that, that has a birth center. And you know what right. I mean by that, okay? Yes. The birth center at the hospital is, yeah, okay, you can have nice carpeting and curtains, but you still have to follow the rules of the birth center and you can't, you can't have a tub and you can't do this. And if you, you know, if you're laboring too long, you have to be transferred to the hospital. I mean, all the rules that they have. So the same, they did the same thing. So it was sort of like destroying the, the concept, the initial concept of, a, uh, of assisted living. All right. And um, the other book I'm reading right now is called Confederacy of Dunces. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that book either. It's mentioned briefly in the movie Sideways, and that's sort of why it stuck in my head. And then it just came up in conversation the other day. So I thought, you know, I'll read this book. It's really interesting. The guy was, um, who wrote this book, he wrote it in 1962. And it's about one of the most obnoxious possible characters you could ever read in a book. It takes place in New Orleans. The guy's just, I mean, just, and the, and the reader that's reading it on audiobooks is so good because he does the accents and he does the things and he, and he's so good. And he, you just, he's so pompous. You, you, you hate him, but it's an evolution of him going from being this pompous jerk to actually being, uh, understanding more about society and stuff like that. I'm just into the book, but there's a quote that's from Jonathan Swift. That's that where the title of the book came from. That fits really well with the the woman from Portland, or if somebody like me, um, and I don't want to. I mean, I'm not for um, for arrogance or for false humility. But the quote goes like this: When a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign: that the dunces are all in confederacy against him. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this woman did something really innovative and all the people said they can't do it. She can't do it. All right. What we're doing and you and I are doing and what people are doing uh, in the home birthing world, we're doing something innovative that people want, that it is in demand. And yet we're told over and over and over again, you can't, you know, you shouldn't be doing it. It's not safe. You can't be doing it. It's just, it's, it's crazy. So I'll leave it at that. And it's not, it's not innovative. It's, it's back to the basics. It's how it's always been. It's respecting nature, you know? Um, but yes, I know that we're, we're swimming upstream in a culture that doesn't really honor that. So I wanted to tell you that that podcast I've mentioned before, Terrible Thanks for Asking, just did like a three or four, I think it's a four part series on care. Um, and one of them specifically is talking about palliative care. Um, and it's a really, really uh, beautiful episode talking about elderly and dying and um, caring for them. And, um, you know, really looking at the quality of someone's life and what their goals are in terms of the end of their life and really supporting them. And that it's really, really beautiful. So say the name again, Bliss. Terrible thanks for asking. And it's in one of their most recent episodes. They did a series on care. Um, actually, the last one that they did is is um, caring, uh, being a caretaker during the time of COVID. Um, and it you know, goes through a whole spectrum of, of people who talk about their experience of like taking care of children or taking care of their, their um, ailing parents during COVID and what that's been like. Really, it's a really good um, podcast. Very, very well done. Thank you for sharing that. that. That's a perfect segue into my closing statement, which is that I know that all of us are swamped with things to do all day long, whether it's taking care of our elderly or taking care of our children or going to work or taking care of our home or listening to audiobooks or listening to uh, multiple podcasts. And the fact that all of you that are still listening right now, Amy, Bethany, Daniel, JD, 
uh, Jen, Leslie, Letitia, Tiffany, Trisha, and a few other people that were here and left, and all of you people who are going to be listening on Rumble for now and eventually when we get the podcast about, I, I really do appreciate the fact that you give us an hour a week. Bliss and I are, um, we love we love doing this and uh, we will continue to bring you information that I hope you find enlightening and entertaining. Right, Bliss? That's right, as long as we have brain cells. <laughs> that are, that, yeah, that I still have electric activity because we'll have brain cells. Right. Anyway, um, good, luck on, good luck on your birth today. And uh, thank you all for listening. <laughs> Until next time, um, this has been Dr. Stu's podcast number 202. And uh, we'll see you again. Bye-bye. Have a good week.